Hey, everyone, and welcome to Don't Skip, a podcast featuring the brightest minds in advertising. I'm Zach Seckler, a comedy director and photographer. If you like quirky humor, you might like my work. You can check me out at zachseckler.com. Today, we're chatting with Dan Oliva. Dan is a senior creative director at BBDO New York, where he works on the Snickers account. Dan's won dozens of awards from Cannes, Clio, AICP, The One Show, Webby's, DNAD, and the list goes on. His most recent award was a Super Clio for his 2020 Super Bowl spot for Snickers. Dan and I had a conversation that is loaded with insider knowledge and advice. We talk about the planning and strategy around creating Super Bowl spots, about hiring and working with different commercial directors, about gaining the trust of clients when working on a creative brief, and we dive deep into talking about how three different spots for Snickers developed, touching on everything from the initial brief to pre-production, production, and post. Check out Dan's website, danoliva.com, to view the work we chat about in this episode. I really love this chat with Dan, and I hope you do too. This is Don't Skip, Dan Oliva. Good to see you, man. Thanks for coming. Yeah, you too. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So you're calling from New York, right? From the offices of BBDO? That's right. Yep. I'm at BBDO and we're just starting to trickle back into the office. And you are in a very fancy sound booth looking contraption. I'm jealous. I am. I found some sort of traveling sound booth. It's like a porta potty for recording. (laughs) Love it. Well, let's start off talking about, let's start off with where are you from and what's been your path into advertising? Yeah, I'm from the Chicago area. I'm from a suburb called Barrington, Illinois. But my path into advertising, I I guess you could say it really just started with like my whole life just liking comedy, always liking to, you know, joke around or find sort of awkward humor in things. So I always kind of had an interest in it that way. Like even when I was a kid, I just, I liked funny ads. I remember liking Super Bowl ads when I was a kid. So there was always like a little bit of that interest in there, but I wasn't, you know, wanting to be in advertising as a kid. I started more like in high school, partially by virtue of just like being bad at math. I gravitated toward classes that were like graphic design, a little bit of creative writing, and a little bit of photography and stuff like that. And then so I just started pursuing that. I went to Ohio University, majored in visual communication, which was like a blend between journalism and graphic design and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it was some time in there that I I really wanted to pursue advertising as a career. It's not like what I was studying in college, but I think what I was studying gave me kind of the skill set to get into advertising. But then I knew I was like much more interested in kind of creating stuff and writing stuff and ideas and all that. So I came out of college and I had put together a bad portfolio that was just, you know, really clueless. And I was, (laughs) I tried to shop that around a little bit. Like I went home to Chicago and I tried to shop that around a little bit. And some of the work in that was like, there weren't even concepts or something. It'd be almost like designy kind of work. Uh And I got some, some kind responses that were like, I think, I think I can help you. (laughs) And so I was basically, it was like a chorus from everybody that I would send my work to pursue ad school. 
So then I went to Miami ad school up in Minneapolis. So that so the helping you was you should go to ad school. Yeah, oh totally. <laughs> it, it absolutely was. It was it was They're like this is great. Um you should go back to school. It was basically <laughs> if you want to do this, this is not quite how this is done. Uh, so you should go to ad school and you know put some time in to make a portfolio. Yeah. And wait, what, and before you go on from there, what what was your, do you remember any specific ad from being a kid or a campaign or Super Bowl spot that really grabbed you and showed you, okay, well, advertising can be something more than just background noise. It can be entertaining. It could be popular culture. Yeah, for me, it was, well, maybe not specifics. When I was really young, I just thought Super Bowl ads were great because they were funny and I was just drawn to that. And usually it was like Bud Light, like beer ads. Yeah. When I was really little, I don't know if you remember the the Bud Bowl, uh-huh. but it was just bottles of Budweiser and bottles of Bud Light, like playing football against each other. Oh, and it would yeah. happen like three times throughout the game. And I just remember that. And, um, yeah. you know, there was like the era with the frogs and all that kind of stuff. But I remember it feeling like an event. And then, you know, when I was a little older, you know, stuff like the cat herding spot, those kinds of things, you know, really caught my attention. And and I thought that was really cool. And at that point, probably wasn't too far off, you know, thinking maybe that'd be a cool career. Mm -hmm. So you went to Australia, right? I did. Yeah. And it was your first like internship at a school? That's right. Yeah. So one huge advantage of Miami ad school was they have that a lot of people probably know this. They have that internship program where they have hookups around the world. And so my partner and I at the time, I think we had originally put in for an internship here in New York, but we were on the the younger end of the students wanting internships. So the New York ones went to more senior students and they came back to us and they said we could go to Seattle or Sydney. And we were just like, well, I think we'll take Sydney out of those two. A little more sunshine. Yeah. And so we went down there as an intern and worked for two American creative directors who just really gave us a great opportunity and they hired us to come back full time. So I spent about four years there to start my career. And how quickly did you start doing work that, you know, that had that comedic tone that you had really admired growing up as a child and probably the the tone that you were seeking as you were studying and going to ad school. Like yeah. how long did it take to you started creating that quality of work? I mean, it took a while. There's almost two questions in your question. Because <laughs> how how quickly I was trying it was immediately. <laughs> yeah. Like we we were um Kellogg's was our major client. It was JWT Sydney. Uh-huh. And Kellogg's was our major client. And the two creative directors that hired me had just come in to try to kind of up the creative chops of that agency. I didn't know any of this. I had no idea what the reputation was. To me, it was like a job. These guys seem cool. You know, mm-hmm. let's go have some fun. And so Kellogg's, you know, just by nature of some of their products gave us a chance to write some funny stuff and kind of start cutting our teeth. It didn't all necessarily work, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, I, you know, I look at that as like a big advantage of my career is just being able to start there. It was not a very big department in, you know, Australia is well known for having some good advertising, but it's still like a small market. Yeah. You know, so my partner and I, we really got the benefit of just, just getting reps right away, mm-hmm. you know, and being able to do stuff and produce stuff. But it took a while to make it any good you know, there'd be like a, a good joke here and there. But over the course of our four years there, it probably took till the very end of that to get to a place where it felt like we had some, you know, wind at our backs. Uh-huh. Was there any moment 
you know, so people talk about having big breaks in their career where kind of everything changes and takes a new course and sets them on the path that they're on now. Was there any break like that for you or was it just more of a cumulative effort, you know, grinding and incrementally getting better and better? There were a couple of breaks for sure. I mean, I think you just have to get lucky at some point. Is there one that stands out? Well, the first one, the first break like that is just was just arriving there. Just getting that internship in the right place at the right time that led to being in a situation where I could write some stuff, produce some work, kind of, you know, hit the ground running a little quicker than what I imagined being a junior at a bigger agency in New York would have been. Mm -hmm. So that was the first one. And then we got it was probably toward the end of our tenure there, we got a brief for Bundaberg Rum, which is a very, very you know famous rum from Australia. And they just kind of wanted a revamp and they wanted a big funny spot. And we got the brief for that. We had a great client. It was like, you know, just a very one-on-one type of relationship. And we were able to make a funny spot, you know, that, that became the showpiece of our reel that felt like a breaking point. Like that ended up getting me in the door at Wyden later. So stuff like that. Whereas like, if I didn't have that spot at that time, then maybe not everything would have broke my way. And now, and that's still on your website. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> it's yeah, a, it's yeah. a fun one. Yeah, I love how it ends in huzzah. <laughs> yeah. The last yeah. time I heard that was watching, I don't know if you've seen the TV show, The Great oh, no. on Hulu, but that's like a big... It's a big through line, that, that line of dialogue. And, yeah. and I haven't heard, I haven't seen the show because it has been out of production since COVID, but yeah. just watching it before this interview, I was like, oh, oh, that's it's so funny to hear that. Yeah, that's one of those little little things that become the most memorable thing. Like yeah. so much ridiculous stuff happens, but then it's just the most memorable thing is that little sign off. Yeah, I like catching the, the crocodile tail too. Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, cool. So, and then from there you went to, from there you went to Widen? Yeah, there was a couple agencies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Widen in New York and then BBDO and you've been there since 2015, right? That's right, yep. I'm just curious, like, so you're a senior vice president, creative director now. You know, what's it like going, you know, when you had first started Widen about 10 years ago, what have you seen transition in your own, your own skill set? And maybe your own taste too, but how have things changed in those 10 years of going from more of a, a mid-level creative to a senior creative? I think the biggest thing is you get tighter and more efficient. It's almost like what you're not doing more than, than what you are doing. You take kind of cumulative experience of what, what kind of jokes or what kind of you know, things in a script translate best on screen or in, in any kind of idea. And you just kind of trim the fat a little easier, you know, to, to get to what works. I think that, and it's nothing more than just, just experience, you know, just the advantage of, of having more years experience and a little more time under your belt. Yeah. It's funny you say that because one quality that I love so much about your work is the simplicity yeah. of the humor. When you're looking on the website and if you, if you wrote these scripts down, you know, the kernel of the idea is fairly simple, but I personally find in my work and I find that doing simple really well, it can, number one, it can be the strongest. And number two, it can be the hardest thing to make something simple really shine. Yeah. You know, but when you get it, you knock it out of the park and it's a home run, you know? And I feel like you've got so many home runs 
with the work that you've done. But anyway, I just want to say that, that it's, you know, I've really noticed that in your work. And it's actually funny because if you look at, if you look at the Bundaberg rum and anyone listening who has the opportunity, the website is danoliva.com. I'm going to ask people to, to check out your work in advance, but definitely check it out before or as we're talking. The Bundaberg rum has like, it's a little bit more complicated, right? There's a lot going on. Right, yep. But even with, you know, you go to Snickers Live, right? Which is seemingly a very complex visual performance, but the kernel idea is really simple, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just, well, what if we did a live Super Bowl spot where the stakes were very, very high? Yeah. And because he's hungry, it all goes haywire and you screw it up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it has that level of production quality that's Super Bowl, Super Bowl-esque, Versus some, you know, some of the spots on your site, like a couple that we were talking about offline, you know, Snickers, number one fantasy, the production value is, it's more streamlined. It's just, it's just a home location. There's a, you know, a couple, a couple talent. It's not a huge production, but it's the same simplicity. So anyway, I'm just, I'm just blabbing on about how much I like your work, but, (laughs) but it ties into the, what you learned, what you've learned, right. And gotten better at. That's right. And you can kind of see that. And I think I've gravitated toward, I I always tend to, you know, go comedic with almost any brief I'm given, but I've definitely gravitated toward keeping things based on real life. It just feels like there's enough funny, awkward and weird stuff that happens, (laughs) you know, just by being human and trying to like deal with other humans and to me, yeah, I do like to keep it simple and based on real life. And, you know, a lot of my work lately doesn't get too far into like world building, you mm-hmm. know, and, you know, kind of creating much fantasy. Yeah. So let's dive into one of my favorite spots of, of all time and of yours is the Snickers recovery room. Do you want to quickly kind of run through the concept and what it's about for anyone who's not able to watch it at this moment? Yeah, well, the concept in that spot is that It started with a thing that actually, I guess, really happens, as unbelievable as it is, where a surgeon or a team of surgeons will leave little things inside people after a surgery. And usually it's something a little bit less ridiculous. It's just like a little piece of gauze here, you know, maybe even a small tool here and there. But it's a thing that actually happens, and it's a thing that hospitals get sued for. And so we just took that concept and basically what happens in the spot is there's a patient in a recovery room after a major surgery and the doctor has sewn his cell phone into the patient. And we see the brightness of the screen kind of through a thin layer of skin on the patient. And the doctor and the hospital administrator are there trying to pad the situation and make the patient feel okay while the patient is just there just as confused as can be. <laughs> and then the phone rings, right? Just as the doctor's apologizing. So we open on the doctor up saying, I'm, I'm so sorry. And all you see is that it's the doctor in this, what you must assume is like an ICU or something. You don't see the patient. There's nothing about the phone and he's just apologizing. And then you go to his assistant who's like, a, you know, so sorry. And then you cut to the patient and you see the brightness of the screen <laughs> coming through the stomach. And it's just the joke is immediately there. But that I love that moment of the buildup of the misdirect that you think it's going to be, oh, the guy like, you know, uh, what any other medical malady that could have happened. But it's, it's this ridiculous thing. And then the phone rings and it just gets 
it's it's so silly because he picks up the phone through the guy's stomach and yes. he's like and it's his wife <laughs> with just a very mundane everyday phone call right yeah. but it's played yeah. so straight like oh oh honey uh yeah I, I have I have uh I have work right now I have to go <laughs> you know it's just played so straight but with such a ridiculous situation and that that's one quality that I love so much about it let's back up a little bit and could you tell me I don't know if you remember but you know a little bit about the initial brief and then how this you know, following this spot through the story of going into production and then becoming what it is. Yeah, this spot, I think it was written initially as a Super Bowl spot, but it was, it just didn't have the bells and whistles of a Super Bowl spot. There was no celebrity, you know, it just, it didn't feel like as much of a spectacle. But what had happened was the Super Bowl spot we did end up doing that same year was the live spot. And typically in years past, Snickers had run a Super Bowl spot and then used that same piece of creative, you know, in 30 or 15 cutdowns throughout the year. So because we were doing the live spot and that by nature of the concept was just one and done, we needed another spot to put on the air the rest of the year. So this kind of got back into the mix that way. So there was no specific brief just to do a spot like this. It was, it was kind of born out of necessity. Gotcha. So the idea of the live, the Snickers live, that came first. And then they said, okay, we also need another spot that we can run. And there was no particular brief or, or strategy behind it. It was just like, make something good. I mean, pretty much. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. Not that there's no particular brief or strategy, but right, right. on Snickers, it had been consistent for yeah. however many years. You know, we knew, you know, hunger makes you out of sorts and leads to problems in your life that could have been avoided. Right. So it was very much just sticking to that tried and true strategy. And then, you know, they just had, they, to their credit, have an appetite for, you know, the funniest stuff that we can put out there. So yeah, they love that one. And we got to, we kind of got to do both. And then, so David Shane was the director who worked on this one with O Positive. Can you tell me a little bit about the process of of hiring the director or deciding on the director? Yeah. That whole process? Yeah. I met David. I first worked with him on the Sports Center campaign at Wyden. He was he was shooting all the Sports Center spots and I got a chance to write my first Sports Center spot, but you know, we weren't choosing a director. You know, we would make a round of work and a few teams would be working on it. So you just kind of show up and David Shane was the guy. So that's how I first met him. And then we went on to do a whole bunch of ESPN work together. And so by the time we shot Recovery Room, me and my partner, Scott Mahoney and David, all kind of had a working relationship. And I think we just gravitate toward, you know, some of the same kinds of humor, like, you know, just the mundane struggles of everyday life. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we, we knew that tonally he would be great for this for the reasons that you kind of outlined is that it is completely absurd, but the way everybody is acting is like just completely true to life. Right. Like, how do you act when something is going so far off the rails, but you're kind of trying not to acknowledge it? And, you know, like the patient is like, he's been so wronged, he doesn't even know where to begin with, you know, asking for some sort of retribution or anything like that. So, right. We just knew his sensibility would would line up very well with it, and he'd bring a lot to it. And then, how did the how did the project develop from script to screen? You know, were there 
Were there any big turns from when you guys created the initial idea to, you know, how it actually developed that, you know, whatever it may be about the talent or the location or some of the lines, anything that was a surprise or a happy accident? I don't know about a surprise or a happy accident, but I would say a huge amount of credit to how it actually developed on screen is just to the actors. Scott Organ was the patient. Aaron Sorotsky played the doctor and Mary Holland was the hospital administrator who are all very, very funny, great actors in their own right. And just the three of them playing off each other, Mm -hmm. I think just brought so much depth to that. Even in scripted form, you would have just, you would just never kind of see it coming together that well or see it going there. But, but I think they were kind of the biggest factor in just like nailing that. Can you talk about the casting process a little bit? Was it a large casting, a lot of callbacks, or were you guys kind of nailed in or dialed in rather just on on a few ringers? Because I've I've seen, I've definitely seen these actors quite a bit, especially on David's Reel. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how the casting came to be? Yeah, it was it was by no means a small casting of just ringers. It was, you know, a big sort of wide, typical, like, you know, two, three days of callbacks to find the right actors. And one of the things David does, is he, he drills down like pretty hard in casting in terms of, you know, putting the actors through the material, getting alts, getting, you know, different reads of it, getting different tones, playing it in different ways. It goes kind of much further than, than who fits the bill. You really start to get a sense of like, okay, this is going to be the tone of it with with these actors and this is how it's going to come together. So it's a lot of almost rehearsal-like exploration in the casting. So you would say that a lot of the tone of the performance was developed in the callbacks. And you guys, did you guys kind of align, you and David and, and the creative team kind of align on that during the callbacks and agree on certain takes or certain performances? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, I think... We just kind of naturally did more than, you know, we sit down and say, okay, we agree, we're going to play it this way. (laughs) Right, right. I I feel like when you see it in the room, you know, when you just see the right kind of moment, even if it's not what you were thinking it would be, it just kind of clicks. And, you know, you just kind of falls into place and you understand like, okay, that's, that's where we're going with this. Right. Can you go a little bit deeper on how David works with actors? There's a phrase that I steal from him often he always talks about what's behind the eyes like a lot of the spots that we write and a lot of you know the stuff that we have done on snickers has a lot of moments where people are just processing things you know something's happened something's happened to them or they've witnessed something or they've embarrassed themselves and it's not about like how funny the act of embarrassment looks it's just like that little look in someone's eyes where something's dawning on them and something's happening behind the eyes. So there's a lot of kind of subtext like that, that he, that he really brings out of actors through the smallest, subtlest looks. Interesting. Yeah. Did you guys do a lot of, or any just silent takes, just like just going through expressions without any dialogue in the scripts? I can't remember if we did that exactly, but we have, we've definitely done stuff like that before you know where you just yeah sometimes you know there's like little tricks where if you just hold way too long on someone and then that <laughs> moment they get uncomfortable and they're not sure if they're acting or not anymore and yeah you you might you may or may not just get like a little piece of gold out of that yeah yeah 
And let's see, were there any any ideas that you guys or alts that you guys tried on this one that didn't make into the edit that you were a big fan of or or you didn't have time for that got cut for time? Well, there was one, there's one that actually the way it was scripted and it actually did make it into the edit was that at the end, so the, the current ending is um, the doctor reassures the patient by saying, you know, we're going to make you feel better. And then the Siri function of the phone hears it as um, a question of how to make butter. So it starts telling you how to make butter. Yeah. The original way that it was going to end was with the doctor telling the patient it's going to be okay. And the Siri chimes in and says, okay, resuming play. And then that song, Hey Mickey by Tony Basil starts playing out of the phone through the guy's skin. Right. And we had actually had that in the cut and we had, we'd secured the rights to the song and everything, but then we got some sort of cease and desist because there was a dispute about who held the rights to that song. Oh, geez. So apparently there, yeah. So it was like, you know, someone had, basically said that we'd pay the wrong people for it. And so the whole thing got kind of held up in a legal dispute. So we uh, we had to get it on air. So we just moved away from that one. Gotcha. I've, I have seen both cuts. Have you? Yeah, it, it, it went out there. Yeah. I do like the Mickey version because yeah. the way the music yeah. plays out over the end card is just such a nice, like closing the loop on the whole spot. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It worked nicely. I'm so glad we got to talk about that because it's just one of my all-time favorites. And another spot I want to talk to you about, Dan, is... Another Snickers spot is number one fantasy. Can you tee up this one a little bit for anyone who hasn't seen it yet? Yeah. So in this, this was a spot for Snickers NFL partnership. And it was, you kind of parachute into the scene and this guy is staring off into the distance and he's, he's kind of fantasizing out loud. He's saying, you know, just no family, no job. You know, I just leave one day and I never come back. And then you kind of, pop out wider into the room and you realize he's at a uh, fantasy football draft. Mm-hmm. His friends are all kind of looking at him. He just like laid this heavy fantasy on him. And, and the guy next to him just kind of slaps him on the knee is like, uh, number one fantasy pick. <laughs> and he just kind of snaps out yeah. and realizes that he's lost himself. And he's just kind of laid bare this, this dark fantasy that he has, but he was really just supposed to make his draft pick. Yeah. Now it's it's such a simple again it's it's so this is so simple this is even simpler than a recovery room it's just a person's house and you open on this guy again who's just he's just going on about how he wants to get away from his life that's his number one fantasy and then you know there's only a few cuts in it why is this one of your favorite spots this is one of my favorite i mean apart from it just being darkly funny which i always like this is one of my favorites because the performance from that actor who's stating his fantasy, his name's Stephen Pritchard, I think, is just so deep and so, uh, you know, convicted. It's, it's, it's almost like the kind of thing where, like, what's so funny about it is how not funny that performance yep. is, like how dramatic it is, how, you know, just far into the distance that he's staring and how he's just, it really feels like he's bearing his soul. I just thought it was like incredible performance. I remember even on set. And then that's just immediately played off of, you know, you, you cut to the other actors in the room who just give a little look. And that's, that's where the laugh is every time, you know, there's another guy standing in front of the draft board and he just looks at him (laughs) like, Oh my gosh, did you just, you know, did you just tell us all that? Yeah. 
Uh, and then the whole thing kind of snaps out of it. And they're all trying to like brush it under the rug. Like, all right. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Guys, don't talk about this stuff. Like, let's keep it going. The heaviness that it starts with. Yeah. I really like that. I, I think you articulated it so well. It's it's his performance at the beginning. Just, he looks so, he looks depressed, you know? And there's a mm-hmm. there's a desaturated look to the whole spot. And he just looks sad. And, and like you were talking about, you know, I was just watching it again as you were talking with the sound off and you can see that performance in his eyes. You know, you can see him just like, mm-hmm. you can see him thinking about getting away, right? Yeah. It's such an authentic performance. So from script to screen, did it start out exactly like that? Is that how you had it in your head? It was pretty close. I think the major difference from the script, if I can remember, to the edit was just how we set it up. In the edit, that performance was so strong, it worked to just come right in on it. You know, you're coming in blind before you're kind of revealing the scenario that you're in. The script may have been set up a little differently where you kind of knew you were at a fantasy football draft um, and then someone just responds inappropriately or something like that. But that would have taken quite a bit out of it if it had been done that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like it's kind of, it's a little bit of a trick with comedy with the misdirect at the beginning of opening tight. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of almost a formula in a way, but for something that you could say is formulaic, it doesn't happen so well, so brilliantly that often. It's kind of, it's kind of amazing because, you know, again, when you boil it down, there's, there's a simplicity to it, but doing simple is hard. I say it all the time. Yeah, it is. It is kind of a formula, but it's, it's a formula that doesn't always work because the front part, the part where you're kind of flying blind, you're not sure what's happening, has to be so convincing and so real and so tone setting that it gives tension to pay off the back part, you know? Yeah. Which can be hard to get all the way there a lot of times. Yeah. And it does come down to performance a lot of times and, and you need that really strong opening, right? To set the, set the tone, set the vibe yeah. just in those few frames you know, initially, which can be hard, right? Yeah. I mean, because that's, you know, a lot of times with with world building, it takes multiple shots and production design to to build that world. So yeah. here it's just done with a really great emotional performance. Yeah. So you've done so much great work for Snickers, but you've also done really great work for, for Dunkin' Donuts, for SportsCenter, I wonder about the process of selling these ideas through to the client. You know, these are all these are all brands that that do a lot of great comedic work. How much do they do they trust the creative teams to just kind of do their thing, or what's the process with with selling through an idea? I mean, it varies client to client. Definitely, like trusting the creative teams varies because that just takes longer relationships and more time to kind of earn that trust. I mean, there's, Mm -hmm. there's almost no clients who will just trust you right off the bat because they hired you. Sure. Uh, And, and, you know, why, why should they from, from their perspective as well? So it takes, it takes different things for most clients. I think clients who really want to be funny, you have a built-in advantage because you're on the same page with expectations from the beginning but most clients, I, I think they do kind of require a little bit of presentation, a little bit of visual, a little bit of not only just what's on the page, but walking them 
through the thinking and the insight and making sure that everything is strategically sound. And, and that's why, you know, it can pay off with a joke like this. Mm-hmm. As much as I would love it to be like this, there's very few clients who who don't need at least some degree of that. The only the only one I can think of was ESPN when we did sports center spots, specifically just the sports center spots. Those meetings were not decks and visuals and all that stuff. It was like a, a printed packet of scripts and kind of everybody sitting in the room. It's almost like a table read. You'd have like three or four creative teams and the clients and everybody would just read their scripts and people would just react. And that campaign's a little bit special in that way because it was just sure. the most fun part of everybody's month, yeah. you know, <laughs> sitting in that room and hearing this. So, so it's a little bit different. But yeah, most clients, you have to, you just have to have a solid basis for what you're doing. Yeah. You know, and it has to be strategically sound. And if you can walk them through it, if you can show them where the funny parts will be, then you've got a chance of selling it. So, you know, no need to name names or anything, but, you know, can you give an example of what a presentation would be like in terms of, you know, I can imagine presenting scripts. You know, I've never, I'm on the other side of things as a director, a photographer. Mm -hmm. So I've never been in the room when any of these ideas get pitched and it always comes to me in such a finished form. I'm curious how, what it's like. So do you, do you guys present a script and have a deck of visuals to kind of flesh out, you know, just give reference or what, what's it, what's it like? Typically we will do that. We'll present a script and we'll read the script uh, a lot of times if it's being presented on a screen especially we'll just click through basically storyboards like a, a short storyboard of the script to illustrate you know just put more of a picture in people's minds of how it will go and so usually it's that way it depends on the brief too if you know sometimes a brief for snickers could be about the meetings about scripts right so you have four or five, six scripts, and you're kind of going through one, two, three, four, five, six, and you could do this, you could do that, you know. But sometimes the scripts are part of selling, you know, a whole conceptual platform and selling a new campaign or something like that. So it's scripts, but then there's also a whole bunch of other pieces of work, Mm -hmm. you know, that aren't just TV or OLV. So the scripts, maybe even the bigger role of the scripts would be to just illustrate the campaign and, you know, give the sense of what the tone and the intention of it is. So in those instances, maybe we don't do like the whole storyboards. We just, you know, put some imagery up that kind of gives you a mood and gives you an idea. What about with Super Bowl spots? You've done several Super Bowl spots. How does the process work when, when you're presenting in that category? Yeah, the, the process, it's just bigger. Yeah. It's just like... Everyone has bigger chairs they're sitting in, bigger table. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, exactly. Everything is physically bigger. There's just more eyes on it. There's more scrutiny. There's just a level of, I don't think nervousness is the right word, but the clients are spending a whole lot of money to be seen in front of a whole lot of people, you know, so they want to know that what they're putting out there is the right thing and it's going to do well, you know, and it's going to be received well by everybody and it's not going to piss anybody off. And, you know, so there's like, there's a lot of bases to cover with that, which, which oftentimes means more meetings. And oftentimes it means just more revisions, more versions, taking more feedback, you know, into the project. And then, and you kind of just have to keep going. It just becomes one of those things where you have to outright it. You just keep showing up with more stuff to kind of answer 
all the questions and all the concerns. And, and then now too, the Super Bowl spots, you know, require a lot of surrounding work, you know, things to kind of, everybody releases their spot before the game. Everybody, you know, sees the spots on the game. So part of the challenge is like, what else can you do? Yeah. You know, on top of all that to get attention um, and kind of rise above the other spots. And that's how Snickers Live probably was born with that idea in mind of, you know, how do we one up everyone releasing their spots in advance? How do we create something special, right? Exactly. That's exactly how that that came about. That was probably one of the few times since I've worked on Snickers where it came from just a much shorter, like few sentences in its first presentation. Oh yeah. You know, what if what if we did a live Super Bowl spot? And it all went wrong, you know, because somebody was hungry. Yeah. And it kind of started that simple. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. How did that develop? So the Super Bowl spot that we're talking about, it you open on Adam Driver in a in a Western, like an old West themed kind of back lot. And uh, you know, there's a saloon and there's everyone's dressed in period wardrobe. How did you guys arrive at that as the kind of mechanism to deliver the whole? Because it, it could have been a lot of things, right? That could have gone, all that, right. all that matters is something has to go wrong and it has to be big, right? Yes, Because the whole right. set falls apart and everything smashes and right. gets, and just, things start burning. And <laughs> how did you guys arrive at that? Yeah, it could have been a lot of different things. And along the way, I think it was a lot of different things. But it started like I was saying, with just the idea of like, what if we did a live spectacle for a 30 second spot and then it went wrong? And then, you know, we were thinking about what could that be? Did it, you know, would it look like some sort of stage show? Would it look like some sort of almost variety show spectacle? But that was never quite working because it's like, if you're going to have a misdirect where it all goes wrong, we need people to believe that Snickers is doing this for a reason in the first place. Right. And so then, so then we kind of brought in a more, you know, a more narrative structure to it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's a spot that we were attempting to pull off that went wrong Yeah. rather than stuff just kind of caving in on us, you know, for the sake of it. Mm -hmm. And then we, we had arrived on the, the Western thing just because really quick read. It's a, it's a genre that people, people know there's a lot of visual cues to it. You know, it suits Adam Driver. Because uh, we had him on board, and we just wanted to get to somewhere where people could kind of very easily pick up the narrative because it's a thirty second spot and it's going to go off the rails pretty quick. So if you don't kind of grasp it early, yeah, you know, or it's too complicated or there's too much setup, then you're just going to lose everybody. Who directed that? Jim Jenkins directed that from O Positive. He had a great vision for it too. You know, he was really into the Western thing and just making it as big of a spectacle as it could be and you know i mean for him directing it it was it was a little like a blend between directing a spot as we usually would and theater directing because we had the way jim set it up was really smart it was like we had days and days of rehearsals leading up to it mm -hmm. but our first rounds of rehearsals were with stand-in actors and we kind of filmed and then edited them to kind of figure out because 
when we do a live spot, we're editing in real time. So we need to know which camera we're on at what time. So we were sure. figuring out the way the story unfolds and the way the shots unfold all at the same time to capture it. And then so it is like you're making a spot. Then on the actual day, you're just recreating it in real time. Yeah, You're going back to doing it the live way, but it's everything you've learned from the process of kind of filming and editing before that. And how much of it came together during rehearsals? Like how much did the the final vision morph throughout that process? I would say quite a bit of it came together through rehearsals, just in terms of like finding out what the most important moments were, mm-hmm. you know, that, that could have been different than the ones we expected or certainly what the most important or best angles are to cover stuff and see stuff clearly and how to time stuff out. So I would say actually quite a bit, I think quite a bit, got cut as well. Mm-hmm. We probably had a script that was too long and then 30 seconds goes real fast. Yeah. So we had to pare that down and, and get right to it. Did you have other other little gags that got that got cut? Yeah, there were some there was an extended version that had uh some pyrotechnics at the end. Uh-huh. But those those didn't make it into the cut. It just came later. That's the kind of thing was like, oh yeah, that would be great because that says disaster, you know, some fire, but it actually takes kind of long to get there and for flames to go up and you know oh, yeah. and, and you'd be able to kind of read that and take it in and so you know things like that i think it ended up if i remember there was like a little fire in the corner and a guy comes out with a fire extinguisher obviously not <laughs> that's right, old yeah. western guy yeah. and he, he comes yes, out and puts yeah. it out and that's a that's a cute and that's in like the longer cut, yeah. But yeah, on the Super Bowl broadcast, we were out by then. Oh, you are okay. Yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about the process of selecting a director in general for for a campaign? You know how how much of an impact the reel has versus the actual connection with the director when you're on the creative call and reading their treatment. Can you talk about some of the experiences you've had and Maybe any advice for directors who are who are listening would love to hear the point of view of a of a creative. Yeah. So when we when we first consider directors for a project, I think all of the things you just said matter in in different ways. I mean, the the real is obviously the the first look at a director's work. It's kind of like a shorthand for a tone that they do. But but then I do think when when we have conversations with directors, I personally rely on conversations and treatments i think more than looking back to the real mm-hmm. the real is only that initial thing we also use the real to sell our clients on our choices so it's yeah. important in that way but it's it's much more to me it's about hearing someone else's thoughts and vision for something that we've written and and it's whether it kind of like jives with what we were thinking, but also like surprises us with different ideas and taking in different places or adding things to kind of fill in spots where, you know, the the script might be lacking, you know, so bringing new ideas into it, I think is a big part of like why we choose the director beyond just like, well, we see this as this type of comedy and this director does this type of comedy. I I think you need to mix it up a little more than that Mm -hmm. in order for the best stuff to happen. Um, so those conversations, I think, are are really important to us. Yeah, and I guess you have to assume that 
any any of the three, if it's a triple bid, which it usually is, any of the three mm-hmm. directors, the real is there for all of them, right? I mean, any right. of them could plausibly do it. So that's right. It yeah. comes down to yeah. what's their interpretation of the script. Can you can you think of any any situations where a director's really screwed up on a creative call or with a treatment, they really missed the mark? <laughs> and you were like, you were gonna go with them, but and then and then they they did this and and it was a big disaster. Not because they were hungry from a Snickers, but I. Uh, that's <laughs> funny. I mean, I'm sh- I'm sure that's happened. I can't think of a big instance where that's happened. And obviously, not naming names, but I'm just curious. Like, no, no, yeah. no, 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 no. I would I would never. <laughs> no, there have been calls, of course, where you know we felt like maybe we were on different pages. Yeah, and. For me, that usually comes from stuff like um, almost adding jokes where that aren't part of the joke of the script. You know, if mm-hmm. if a director's instinct, um, I'll try to give a good example here, like wardrobe. You know, if there's if there's an instance where you have a character in a you know some messed up situation, but you also want to put him in a funny shirt or something that's like trying to get a laugh at something that is not the heart of the joke. I kind of find distracting and maybe reaching too much. So there have been a, a few instances like that, you know, that that make me kind of uh, think twice about a director. Um, maybe just trying to like do too much, you know, a- around the script, you know, kind of over-stylize it, if you will. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And it, you know, it goes against the trend of simplicity that we've been talking about. Yeah. What yeah. about any tips for things that directors should do? I mean, it could be, something basic or more nuanced on a, on a creative call or in a treatment aside from ideas i don't know i don't have i don't have a lot of experience with directors like getting things so wrong you know in those initial calls that um there's nothing that kind of nags me that they shouldn't do yeah i do res- i will say i do respect when you talk to a director and they treat a certain way and you might have a follow-up conversation and, you know, we're not totally sure about this or that and your treatment. I do respect when a director stands by the treatment. Uh, just from, you know, the simple fact of like, this is where I would head with it. You know, this is what I would give you. This would be to my strengths. And if you want me to change it or you want something different, you know, then I'm probably not the director for the project. I, I, I do think that is respectable. And did that director end up getting hired or not? No, not in the instance that I'm <laughs> not in the instance that I'm, I'm thinking of. But you know, yeah. still respectable. <laughs> so they got the respect, but not the job. Hey, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because you know there is. I feel like as a director, you walk a fine line between having a vision that you really feel strongly would work best, and then walking the line of you know, maybe the creatives have a, a little bit of a different take, or especially with the client, right? If there's a little bit of a different take and how much you how much pressure you put, right. how much you you say, well, this is my vision. And it's it's very, it's a very fine line. I think it's different with everybody. I think sometimes the initial, you know, the initial idea or feeling could be, well, let's just try and please these people because, you know, they're paying me well and I want to work with them mm-hmm. and all that. But but sometimes it can be really good to to stand up for your vision to the extent that it's not going to lose you the job, maybe. But it's it's a fine line. No, I agree. It's a very fine line. And it also depends 
where exactly a disagreement might be coming from. Yes, totally. You know, there, there's the one thing that that's just like, oh, well, this is my vision for how this joke goes. And you could have a subjective disagreement because, of course, you can. But then there's also, you know, times... I'm sure the agency is asking for something. Creatives are asking for something. And the director has to be like, that is not going to work right. the way you might be thinking it's going to work. Or, you know, and kind of is almost has a responsibility there to make sure that what gets on film is is actually going to going to work and going to play well. Yeah, that's a very good point. It it totally depends on what it is and the scale of the of what it you know, of the problem or yeah. the disagreement. Cause if it's something about wardrobe. That's on a different level than if it's, you know, a, a gag or or a, yeah. a camera angle or whatever. Right. And then what about, you know, we talked a little bit about advice for for creatives. Are there any, I like starting with mistakes first. Are there any mistakes that you see kind of junior creatives making who who are at that entry-level position of their careers who who want to do the type of work that that you've been able to do over your career? Yeah. There are some there are some recurring mistakes. Um, they're natural ones though. I think I'm sure I made the same ones. You know, it's stuff where you kind of push too far. You know, you might have a premise, you might have a funny joke, but then something kind of random and wacky will happen. You know, it just like almost feeling like that need for an insurance policy that there's definitely a laugh in there. Yep. You know, I, I see that mistake a lot. I also see a different version of that where it's almost like um, you have the premise, you have the characters or a joker situation, and it all kind of works. But then either in dialogue or in voiceover or something, it's almost like the joke is then explained too overtly. Yeah. So, you know, I think the, the mistake is just like not having that little bit of restraint, you know, to let the audience close that loop and, and put it together themselves. And just don't take too big of a swing for a laugh because I, I think you can just, you can feel that too much, you know, when you're trying too hard. You can feel the whiff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, th- those are two that I see a lot. And I think the other, the other would just be like a, a little, just patience. You know, I think people, and it probably goes for way more than just writing comedy, but people, you can come into this business and have no experience and, you know, not quite know how to do it, but have really good taste. But then your ability doesn't quite match your taste. And then frustration kind of sets in quickly. So it's just like patience, willingness to just keep taking reps and, you know, put the time in. Mm-hmm. So there is so much failure, right? And there's so many setbacks in a career as a creative. On your side, on my side too, you know, there's, it's always a triple bid and you're not going to get every job. Yeah. Is there a way that you've come to deal with, you know, failure or rejection, whether it was in your early days or, you know, whether it's more closer to present times where you're you want to sell through a great idea and it doesn't get bought by the client? Do you have any techniques or process for dealing with it? Yeah. I don't know if they're techniques, but yeah, you're right. There's so much rejection. Uh, it's a funny way to describe the job, <laughs> but it is true. There's just a sense of like you just keep coming. You know, I had creative directors earlier in my career who who would just call it outwriting, outwriting the clients or outright, whatever the circumstances, you just outright it. So, you know, whatever the feedback is, whatever the barriers to doing it the way you wanted, like, you know, that, um, that Hey Mickey thing I was telling you about, it's just like, all right, well, we just got to come up with something else. You just kind of 
got to outright it, outrun it, um, which is just stamina. You know, it's just, you know, keep, keep coming back. I try to look at the job that way, you know, like every day is just coming up with more stuff and tomorrow I'm going to come up with more stuff and just keep coming up more stuff. And then some of it will stick and eventually get through. But I think it helps like not being emotionally pained if you look at it that way. <laughs> You know, like if one idea doesn't get through, it's kind of in the scheme of things, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt as much if you just think of it as a constant flow of ideas and writing. Mm -hmm. Not easy to do. I think you have to be a little further along in your career to get there, but it seems to work all right. <laughs> I was just going to say, you probably have less rejection at this point than you did early on and, and fewer failed ideas. Oh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of rejection still. <laughs> Did you see yourself struggling with that more early on than you do now? You know, those words of wisdom, have they developed over, you know, many broken broken hearts over the years? Yeah, they have. They have. I mean, I would be amazed at, at someone who could just do that right out of the gate. A lot of, you know, when I was younger, like I, I got fired up you know, way more easily. Yeah. You know, it's just like, wow, why can't they see that this is going to be this or this or that, you know? But you kind of learn that there's all these different circumstances and, you know, different reasons something gets rejected. But for sure, it takes a while to mm -hmm. get there. Yeah. I struggled with it way more earlier. And then what about with when you're working on a spot and you've sold the idea through and you go into production and everything's great and you guys had the, you know, you guys had the comedic moments that you wanted and then it gets down to the edit and the client wants something a little different than what you wanted. How often does that happen in post when you get down to post? Fairly often. That happens fairly often. And sometimes it's not even the clients. Sometimes it's internally. Like there's there's just all kinds of different circumstances that would cause that to happen. Sometimes it's the pure subjectivity of what the funniest thing is. And then, you know, sometimes there's something bigger behind it, you know, like if if a joke is just a little too risky for a client or something like that, you know, which can be hard to argue back against. But there are reasons that it happens all the time. And that that's another thing you just, that is where it helps when you're on set. This, this could be advice to young creatives. That's where it helps when you're on set to cover funny alts and make sure that, you know, you're not putting all your eggs in one basket on one line, you know, or even, even one possible edit you know, you really want to kind of explore the different ways it could play out so that you have those options. Dan, this has been wonderful, man. I've really, really enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks a lot, man. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. It's been great. Thank you again, Dan Oliva, for coming on the show. That was a fantastic episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Once again, I'm Zach Seckler, a comedy director and photographer. You can find me at zacksecklercom That's Z-A-C-K-S-E-C-K-L-E-R.com. The next episode will be dropping in two weeks. I will see all of you then. And until then, don't skip those good ads. Hey.